Now, for those of you who were here last time, we were looking at Isaiah 38 by King Hezekiah. This guy started off really well as a king of Judah. Really started off well. And then he got invaded by the Assyrians who came and took over Judah, his country. And they surrounded Jerusalem where he was. And it looked like he was going to have to surrender. And then at the same time, God says to him, you're going to die. Terminal illness, get your house in order, you're going to die. He's like, I don't know that. And he prays to God. And God says, oh, okay. And I remember last week we looked at it, that um, he prays, turns his face to the wall because he's on his deathbed. He turns his face to the wall, away from religion. He couldn't go to the temple, he was too sick. And he just turns to the wall and says, oh God, you know, please. And Isaiah's just told him he's going to die. And then Isaiah's walking out, and he couldn't have gone more than 15 or 20 minutes walk. And suddenly a word from the Lord comes to Isaiah and says, go back and tell Hezekiah, I'm going to give him another 15 years. And then Hezekiah gives this prayer where he says, oh, thank you, God, you're so good to me. You've saved me, you've given me 15 years. He says, I'm going to walk quietly and humbly before you all the days of my life. And I'm going to share your truth with the children that I'm going to have in these 15 years. Oh, thank you, I'm just going to walk very quietly and humbly. And now we're going to read what happens. That he actually falls away in those 15 years. Can you believe it? And the whole thing opens up a whole range of issues here. Because you could say, look, what matters is eternity. Not this life, but eternity. That's what matters. But from that point of view, the guy would have been better to say, okay, fine, so I'll go down. And then come to everlasting life. But he said, no, no, I want to go on now. Give me a bit of time now. Okay, I'll give you 15 years. Oh, whoops, in that time he turns away from God. And raises all sorts of questions. What is life? And is life actually worth having in, you know, in the flesh, under the sun? So, I want to uh, read this chapter. Um, At that time, Merodash, Palagan, and the son of Palagan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had become a woman. Hezekiah was pleased with that, and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold, the spices and the precious oils, and all the house of his armour, and all that was found in his treasure. There was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah didn't show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did these men say? Where did they come from to you? Hezekiah said, They have come from a country far from me, even from Babylon. Then he asked, What have you seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh of armies. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried to Babylon, nothing will be left, save Yahweh. They will take away your sons who will issue from you whom you shall father and they will be Enoch's in the king of Babylon's palace. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Yahweh's word which you have spoken is good. He said, Moreover, 
for there will be peace and truth in my days. Thanks, guys. What happened was that when the Jerusalem was surrounded by armies, by the Assyrians, one angel of God went out and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. They were all dead. And uh, that was the end of the Assyrians, basically. And all the other nations around thought, oh, Hezekiah's beaten the great invincible enemy. And they sent him lots of money, gold and silver. You can read about it in, uh, in Chronicles. Spices, all the stuff that was valuable for them. And he suddenly became really wealthy, just overnight. There he was one minute, terminally ill, and surrounded by this great big empire, Assyria, Assyrian army all around him. The next minute, oh, he's not terminally ill anymore, he's got 15 years left, and one angel of God goes out and kills 195,000 Assyrians. So his fortunes change just like that, and all the other nations around him think, oh, Hezekiah's a bloke to be in with, they can't bring him in all this gold and silver, and it was like winning the lottery. You know, he's suddenly gone from rags to riches. But, as you can probably imagine, that didn't do him any good. Because these guys from Babylon, and Babylon was then a very small nation, they all come to him, and so, yeah, we'll be friends with you, and he boasts, look at all this wealth I've got, let me show you the house where I keep my gold, the house where I keep my silver. And basically, God hates pride. When Isaiah comes to him and says, uh, so what did you show them? Where they come from? He even boasts about his boasting. He's proud that I was proud. Now quite simply, Jesus said, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. What does he mean by that? Well, in those days the city had a wall around it. And there was a big gate. And a camel could get through that gate with all its goods on its humps. And next to the big gate, there was a little gate called the Needle Gate, where a man could walk through. And if a camel went through the Needle Gate, it had to have all its goods taken off its humps. It had to get down on its knees, and even then it could only just squeeze itself through the little gate. So Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through that needle gate than it is for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. So what do you want in your life? Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? Well, if you want to live forever, that's number one. Well, you don't want to be rich then, do you? Because it's going to be hard. But we all sort of would like to be a bit better off. So do you understand why historically the majority of Christians have been poor? Because God wants us to be in the kingdom. And you also, well my observation, about all the Christians I've known, is that although the majority of them have been a bit poor compared to society, from what I see of them, most of them have got a higher IQ, higher intelligence, than a lot of other people. And they work hard. But somehow life didn't work out. And I often scratch my head and wondered why, why that is. But I know so many people, and we all probably be in the same boat, where, you know, we probably went to school with guys who were lazy, lazier than you and me, who were not very smart, but they did better than you and me. How does that work out? 
A skeptic would say, oh, whatever you are, just it as a waste of time. No, but thinking it through, yeah, that makes sense. Because God's got a number on you. And that's why life doesn't often work out for us. Because he wants us to be in his kingdom, because he sees that above all things, humility is so important. God hates pride and loves the humble. But no one wants to be humble, do they? Who wants to be humble? So, he gets proud. He gets proud overnight. He's suddenly got all this wealth. And Isaiah says to him, well, listen, the days are coming when everything that's in your house, all these things are going to be taken to battle. Nothing will be left. And your sons that you'll have are going to be taken away and they will be units, that is, they will not be able to produce grandchildren for you uh, in Babylon. That's a pretty heavy judgment. Pretty heavy judgment, so it seems. This is a far cry from the Hezekiah who was saying, Oh God, thank you that you gave me 15 years extra to live. I'm really grateful for those 15 years. Um, yeah, sure. You're going to have to get some chairs from next door. We're totally full. Get, get two chairs from the bar next door. Um, this is a far cry from the Hezekiah who said, Oh, thank you, God, you gave me 15 years. Oh, thank you. I'm just going to walk humbly and quietly in my little life now. Ah, he's all lifted up with pride. Now, there comes a time in every man or woman's life when we are brought very low. Every one of us has had that. When you're brought really low, and you think, oh, you've got your focus. And it comes through, and you're grateful. It might be a cancer scare, it can be all sorts of things for you or for your kids or whatever. And you're all sort of humbled. Um, yes, yes, oh God, yeah, I just want to live humbly and meekly now the rest of my days. But does it go on like that? No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, no, it doesn't. Because we slip back. And so, in a sense, God's whole intention is to humble us. And when you get brought down, unfortunately, we don't get these situations that often. You don't get a cancer scare every, every week. But when you brought down, the art of a Christian life is a stay down. And not climb up again in pride and in what has occurred. So, it's a tragic, really. Verse 8 is what I want to think about. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, Yahweh's word which you've spoken is good. He said, moreover, for there will be peace and truth in my days. He agrees. He says, okay, that's good. Because he is thinking inside himself, there will be peace and truth, or there will be peace, really, truly peace in my days. So often the Bible talks about what a man says inside himself, your self-talk. You know, the rich fool said in his heart, remember in the parable, ah, what shall I do with all my wealth? I will build greater barns. And I will say to my soul, soul, you've got many years in front of you with wealth. So self-talk is really important to God. That, I would say, is the essence of what it is to be a Christian. That is the litmus test as to whether you really have received God's spirit. Because God's spirit is God's mind, God's thinking. Whether you have that inside, that is what it is to be a Christian. It is who you are when nobody is looking. Now, I'm not against church, but the problem 
with church is that you go and you show yourself for who you want to show yourself as, then you disappear for a week, couple of weeks, and you come back and you do it again. And that is, it's good to go to church, not bad. But that is not the essence. That is mere religion. The essence is what are you thinking as you walk down the street, as you sit on the tram, as you drive a car? Where's your heart? What do you think when you wake up? What do you think when you go to sleep at night? You see, this is the essence. And this is what can be transformed by God putting His Spirit, His mind in you. And that is why I encourage people to be baptized so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And not in the sense of speaking in tongues, miracles, putting rabbits out of, out of hats and all that sort of stuff. I'm not a fan of all that. But internal transformation. A new pair of eyes, a new mind, a new way of thinking. Well, Hezekiah says inside himself, well, well that's all right, there'll be peace and truth in my days. When you read the Bible, you ask yourself the question, what should the, what should the guy have said? Well, God says, your sons are going to go into Babylon in captivity, Jerusalem's going to go into captivity, the temple is going to be destroyed, everything in it's going to go into captivity. What should he have said? Well, he should have humbled himself and said, God, yes, all right, I was proud, please forgive me, please change this. Because he did that when God had said to him through Isaiah, you're going to die. And he realizes that God is open to dialogue. You see, in Islam, it's all about submission. That's what Islam means, submit. Right? So when God said to Hezekiah, you're going to die right now. Right now, just get your house in order, you're going to die right now. The view of Islam would be, I must submit myself to the will of God. Okay, I, I shall die. But the God of the Bible is open to dialogue. And Hezekiah says to God, well, I don't want to. Okay, God says, I'll give you 15 years. Okay. All for the sake of, as I see it, quarter of an hour's intense prayer. Why in the bigger picture did God structure himself like that? I think it's because he wants dialogue with us. He wants engagement. He wants relationship with us. So that you don't think, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, I'm going to die this evening. Okay. Sub it. But the whole process of Hezekiah praying to God and pleading with him, please, 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 can there be another way? Well, that gets him on point in his relationship with God. And I think that's why God, as I say, has structured his purpose in that way. Right, now God, Isaiah you know, gives him God's word and says, well, all you, you see here, all you've got is going to go into captivity in Babylon and your kids and they're going to become eunuchs. That means your line is going to be cut off. In those days it was so important to have a family line. I shall have children and my sons will bear my name and they will have grandsons and they will bear my name. Blah, blah. And God says to him, no, no, your sons will become eunuchs. They'll be castrated in the palace of the king of Babylon so there aren't going to be no grandkids for you as a king. And he says inside himself, there's be peace and truth in my days. Well, I'm going to have a good life, 15 years. Okay, fine, agreed. Talk about short-termist. Stuff my kids, stuff Jerusalem, stuff all the people. I'm going to get 15 years. All right. He weighs it up and he says, 
Oh, that doesn't do. So he traded eternity for 15 years of a cool life. But was life so cool? Kind of started off that way. In those 15 years, he had a son called Manasseh who ended up one of the worst kings of Judah. And I guess he had a load of trouble with the kid. So that wouldn't have been much fun. And after he did 10 of the 15 years, he thought, hmm, I've got another five years left. Um, and when he came to 14, year 14, I've got a year left, what would he have been thinking? He would have been thinking about his death all the time. That was a deal, 15 years, so I know the end is coming. And I'm sure that he would have been thinking, and life wasn't that great after all, was it? I think Hezekiah wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but that is another story, um, where the book is all on about death and life's meaningless, and I, I want to die and I don't see no point in this life. So there's an unusual story where a guy gets 15 years, where he's supposed to be terminally ill, God says you're going to die tonight, I'll have it, okay, here's your 15 years. And yet, how he traded 15 years of an apparently cool life for eternity. And we might think, ah, oh, that's really stupid, that's really unusual, what an idiot, why did he do that? But that is what everybody is doing. I showed you the video of us on the street in Croydon giving out New Testaments. You can't imagine the sort of comments you get about, uh, look, don't disturb me. I'm living a cool life and I'm very busy. Um, don't disturb me. And if you say to people, but, you know, there's eternal life possible for you, my friend, the comment I always seem to get is, so you say. Maybe so. Maybe so. So you say. But I'm busy. Same mentality. You say there's eternity ahead? Maybe there is. But I'm just good doing my thing now. But this raises our own question. Is life so fantastic? Under the sun, without God, life without God. We live in a world of social media, world of Facebook, where the game seems to be to take a photograph or selfie of yourself at your best moments, at your birthday party when you're surrounded by friends and family and you are dressed nicely and you're smiling nicely and you've got the photo and you put that on Facebook, that's me, as if, look at me, my life's great. We all know that's not how it is. And we are here because we are realists. We don't want to be tapped under the chin and told, you know, life's, life's great, isn't it? Yeah? No. That's not what we're here for. We're here because we're realists. And the other thing is, okay, the Bible offers us eternal life, but what, do I want that? What do we mean by eternal life? Well, life eternal, eternally living in Croydon, for example, drive you crazy. Can you imagine living 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000 years in Croydon, shopping in Tesco, shopping in Aldi, shopping in Middle thank you. No, thank you. And, you know, the past churns and itches. It churns and itches. Uh, with pain and hurt of what they did, what she said, what they did to him, what she did to me, what they did to her. As you go on, that just keeps on going on. 
kill a dragon rat with you? You know, like let me off the planet. You've been trying to commit suicide, you wouldn't be able to. I've got, I've got eternal life on this earth. No. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of God meets man's need exactly where it is. On one hand, I don't want to die, none of us do. It is normal to fear death. It is normal to not want to die. The Lord in Gethsemane was the same. Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to die. It is normal to fear the process. That is normal. That is what it is to be human, is to not want to die. That is normal. That is normal. There's no wrong with that. There's no sin. But on the same, by the same token, thinking about it and scratching your head, I also don't want to live forever, like I am here, but I don't want to die either. So man is actually caught in a pretty dumb situation. I don't want, I don't want the light to go out. We have a fear of endings. It is human. It is what it is to be human. We have a fear of endings. A fear of the wonderful holiday coming to an end. A fear of this relationship coming to an end. A fear of this. A fear of death. Yeah. But on the, but on the other hand, but I also don't want to live, to live forever. I don't want to live a million years in point. No, I, I, I don't want it. It's not my love. Miserable situation. Here is where the gospel comes. That we can be forgiven of our sin. We will die. And we are taught by the gospel to accept death. Because it is inevitable for all of us. But because I live, you shall live also, the Lord said. Because he rose from the dead, we also, if we are connected with him, will rise from the dead. I showed you the video of me baptizing uh, that gentleman in, in Birmingham area. Yeah. Because you go under the water, you die with Jesus, you come out of the water, it's like resurrection with him. I shall rise from the grave and be changed. It's a great chapter about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul says, you know, we shall rise from the dead. He said, he will be at the last trumpet, and in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be raised, and we shall be changed. And I put great score by that, we shall be changed. That we shall be saved as individuals. That salvation is personal. I don't. You, sure, whatever. We shall be saved as persons, but I shall be changed. Not get cranky, not get tired, not get depressed, or whatever the issue is. No more. And live in a perfect environment with all the other faithful believers, with perfect relationships, and in perfect relationship with God and Jesus. It's the relationship issue. That is a big thing. Because life is no fun on your own. You need to have relationships. But relationships do not. Right? And even if they're wonderful, they will end because someone's got to die sometime. It all comes an end anyway. Perfect internal relationship with God, with Jesus, and with all those who have truly loved him forever. 24-7. A long, long line with no end. And this life is just like a millimetre down the, down the beginning. But Hezekiah, like a lot of people, thought, ah, oh, yeah, give me 15 years now. 15 years, cool life, ah, oh, yeah. No. I mean, Paul says that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with that glory that shall be revealed. 
that what's going on now in this, in this very tiny life is not compatible with the eternal life that is ahead. And yet people fly all away by short-termist decisions. And yes, everyone makes himself up and looks good facing their death. But, uh, oh yes, well, I achieved a lot in my life and I had a nice life. We had lots of nice holidays and we did this, that, and that. Yeah, you can make all that out, but deep inside. There is that reality, because we're all realists at some level. That it will make break. Yes, we have those great holidays. Uh, yeah, the shower didn't work and the, the food was overpriced and not particularly uh, nice. And, um, oh yeah, that was with, uh, yeah, that was with my ex. Uh, together now. Um, you know, every great memory is changed by the reality. Right? What we have in the hope of eternity, the hope of salvation, the hope of God's kingdom, is priceless. You can't put a price tag on it. Hezekiah traded 15 years of a supposedly cool life for eternity and didn't care about his kids and the rest of it. And I think Jesus had thought about this when he says these wonderful words. I'm going to read from 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what should a man give in exchange for his life? It's all the language of profit and loss. See, he says, verse 35, Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, he shall save it. Because what does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what should a man give in exchange for his life? It is as if the picture is, there is God facing off against man, and he on the table has got your eternity, your eternal life. What are you going to give in exchange for? You're going to say, oh yeah, 15 years? Yeah, Fifteen years of supposedly cool life for eternity. I mean, I'll run out of words really to try to persuade you to, 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 to see it. That there is nothing, there is no exchange. You, you can't give anything for it. You can't balance it out. Oh, my eternal life, fifteen years cool life. Yeah? I said I think Solomon wrote this book of Ecclesiastes, which is at first blush uh, a sort of a negative, depressive take on life. And he says there, if a man lives a thousand years twice told, it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. You think a thousand years twice told is all vanity anyway. What's that? One thousand plus one thousand. Two thousand years. A thousand years twice told. It's sort of classical English, isn't it? But could be 1,000 times 1,000, which equals 1 million. Even if you could give a million years, it's all vanity and chasing the wind. Oh, but I've got my career. Oh, well, you enjoy your career. Yes, uh, enjoy that for uh, 500 years. <laughs> it's all vanity. You're chasing the wind. You're chasing your tail. And what does it profit if a man gain the whole world and forfeits his life? Remember the story of Alexander the Great? <coughs> went out, conquered all the known world, and then the guy cried because there was nothing left to conquer. And then he, he went out drinking, and he had a heart attack, and he, and he died. Simple as. Even if you've got everything, and 
Now, I said before that anything that God has written, made, gets more beautiful and profound the closer you look at it. Unlike what man makes or man says or man writes, the closer you analyze it, the more you put it under the microscope. The image breaks up and the beauty breaks down. Whatever God has made, the closer you look at it, the more profound it is. And the same with the Word of God. Let's read this carefully. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit? That means to lose his life. What should a man give in exchange for his life? It means he's a tell. It's as if, thinking about it, God has got your eternal life. It's as if you've got eternal life. But somebody might try and trade that, exchange that, as Hezekiah did for 15 years. 15 years cool living there. You cannot give anything in exchange for that eternal life, but it's as if that your eternity is there, you see what I'm saying. But you can't, you know, do you want to trade that, what is there on the table, my eternal life, for 15 years, a million years of this life? So the point is, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. But we can fall away. In the sense that, if you believe, you will be saved. If you believe, and is baptized, will be saved. You may know, the Lord says, that you have eternal life. But, we can lose it. Because, the Lord said, he who endures to the end, he shall be saved. I don't believe in once saved, always saved. Oh, yeah, like in the old gospel hall. Who wants to be saved? Oh, I want to be saved. Oh, we're saved for all time. Oh, great. Can I go to the bar next door and get drunk? Oh, sure, yeah. You can, can I go and do this, that, and the other? Oh, sure, you're saved. No, that's, that's not the idea, is it? Um, you've got to endure to the end. That's obviously so. And so, on the other hand, at this moment, we should be able to say, if I die right now, or if Jesus comes back right now, which is also not off the cards at all, if he comes back and if I die just now, will I be saved? And the good news for those truly in Christ and secure in Christ is, yes, by grace I can say that I am confident. So, you get that sudden pain in your chest, this is it, heart attack, uh, are you sure? of your eternity? If you're driving and you think, you see that truck coming at you and you think this is it, oh, you know, I'm getting out of here, alive. Right. If the Lord comes right now, it's the end of this age as it is. We will all come to judgment. You, you can't write a letter to God and say, oh, I resign. No. We have been called uh, to that eternal life. He has given us life, and that life is in his son. So this is why I urge people to, to look through religion, look past all this stuff, to the essence, to be realists. And I say, well, you know, yeah, I, I've been baptized into Jesus. I am in Christ. Yes, I have no question that I am in him. Uh, if Jesus comes now, if I die now, yes, I'll be saved. I will live forever. Now, if that is true, yeah, it's true for me, and I know there's others here, but I hope that is true. That demands everything. 
If that is what I'm sure, then I'm going to definitely live forever. Well, well, the eternal life starts now. It's not that it's like an insurance policy. That, yeah, I'm going to live the life of Riley now, and this life, oh, I've got an insurance policy, and when, I, you know, when it comes to copying it, well, oh, I've got that covered as well, I'm so smart. No, that's not. No, that's not what we're We're saying that by grace, I am going to live forever. And I'm sure of that at this moment. I might, you know, I might try on the way tomorrow, but as the Lord says, don't worry about tomorrow, that will take care of itself. And it's not this moment. Because we live now. We live at this moment. As of this moment, if I die or if the Lord comes, I will live forever. And I'm not going to trade that for anything. Not 15 years of a tropical paradise, get bored after two weeks. No, I'm not going to trade that for anything. And if you see it realistically, you won't trade it either. Now, this is the good news. That this is incomparable. That what we have got is priceless. This is not a hobby. This is not a culture. That, uh, you know, I'm Christian by culture. Our uh, mum and dad were Christian. I think I got baptised in uh, uh, St. Mark's Church when I was a baby. No, this is not do it. This is what it is to know him. To be sure that I, by his great grace, that I should not be saved, I will be. This is priceless. This is worth everything. This is, as the Lord said, the pearl of great price. That a man will sell all that he has to buy one pearl. When all those little mini parables of Jesus, you start to ask yourself, how does the story finish? Jesus just says, the gospel, the hope of the kingdom, is the pearl of great price, and a man sold all he had and bought one pearl. What did he do with it? I guess he looked at it all day, every day, and thought, wow, my lovely pearl. Sold my house, sold my car, sold everything to buy this beautiful pearl. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, everything was conspected together into that one thing that he had. And that is how it is with us. It's the closest hope that we have of eternity in God's kingdom at the highest possible level of existence. And Matthew's version says, What should a man give in exchange for his soul? Your life. You see, we will, salvation is personal. We personally will be saved. We personally are going to get saved. We personally will be forgiven. We personally will emerge into God's kingdom as, as who we are now, but changed. You know, Jesus said, you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. You'll recognize each other. So, we actually will exist as persons. Recognizable. I shall see Debbie. And then, oh, that's Debbie. And you'll see me, Duncan, but I won't have my glasses, I guess. Um, this is how it's going to be. That I personally will be saved. My soul, my person. That's what it is. You know, save our souls. It just means save me. We will be saved. Me as a person. You as a person. We are the sum of all that we went through in this life. All that forged us. All that acted upon us. We shall be saved for how we are. That you know, I personally will live. I had a little boy who went to 
primary school in, in, in Lewisham. I had a little boy who went nervously to school on the bus for the first time all on my own. You, who had the same things. We who were forged by experience to become the personalities that we are now. We will be saved. But we shall be changed. Sure. But we, you will be saved. And this is the marvellous comfort that man is not alone. You are not alone. I am alone. That God has that special moment on you. And that he wants to save you. He wants to bring you to eternity. So, we go that this is all possible because of the work of the Lord Jesus. And you know, we take the bread and the juice as the symbols of his body and his life, his blood. So then I'm going to give a prayer of thanks for the bread and the, uh, and the cup because they represent to us him, that he died for me. We take it in memory of him that there, I have got someone and that someone is there in heaven who knows me better than I know myself who has got a special number on me and he died for me and as I've said before it is a bit of a mystery that he died for me personally he died for you personally and that's not fake but I have no problem with that but he died for me and he died for you over there he died for us but there is this personal aspect that he died for me let's just try and give thanks then for the bread that represents his, his body Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and for this priceless treasure that we have, this priceless hope that we have of eternity and his presence, his abiding presence in our lives now through his spirit. We thank you with all our heart for him. And we take this bread as a little symbol of our willing participation in his body. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's just give thanks to him. Heavenly Father, we hold in our hands the symbol of your love and of his love toward us, knowing that no man has greater love than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And we are his friends. We thank you with all our hearts. Amen. We're going to give thanks to the food if you'd like to be quiet and Debbie's uh, going to say a prayer. Dear Father Lord, we thank you very much for this food today and for dining and doing service and providing for us all. God bless us all. Thank you, dear Lord. Amen. 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 Amen.